Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Jeff, as always. Today, we have on film documentarian, Toby Ames. Toby talks about his new film, In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50, and he discusses his personal process of how he creates engaging and personal documentaries. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, and today we are talking with Toby Ames. Toby is the director behind the critically acclaimed Rockumentary in the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50. The film began as a straightforward documentary about the cult rock band King Crimson as it turned 50, but it gradually mutated into an exploration of time, death, family, and the transcendent power of music to change lives. So we are really excited to talk to Toby. It's a great documentary. Toby, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Andrew. So, Toby, I wanted to start here in trying to describe the documentary, and I think the best way to do that is, in another interview, I heard you say that uh, Robert Fripp, one of the uh, founders of King Crimson, wanted to make this documentary in order to better understand the nature of King Crimson. And so I'm curious, what do you think he meant by that, and do you think you achieved it in the film? Uh, I have no idea, and I don't care. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about about the documentary and your your you know what you thought about it. Your way in, I know you cover a lot of territory. I just want to give the audience kind of a broad stroke of of what it's about. Yeah, uh, well, in in a slightly less facetious answer to your question, Robert <laughs> has subsequently said that he knows what King Crimson is. So the whole thing is sort of um, you know futile from my point of view in that in that thing but he also hired me because he wanted people who didn't know about king crimson to know about king crimson oh, interesting. Um, and the reason i was interested in making the film is that i knew robert i knew robert to be a very interesting person i didn't know anything about king crimson when i started making the film but when robert started talking to me about them initially he said things like he wasn't the leader of the band and yet he's the only one that's been in the band for over 50 years he's also he also said um that king crimson wasn't a band it was a way of doing things and he was also very hostile to the notion of being called a prog rock band i think mostly because at least with the term progressive there is the idea of evolution um, and I got the impression very early on that Robert was inter interested not in doing the same thing over and over again, which all too many bands tend to do. And for that matter, all too many artists tend to do. But he was interesting, interested in, in development and perhaps getting closer to some form of perfection. As he says at the beginning of the movie, you know, that what the band is capable of remains in potential and that is an acute suffering. So when you said that he says the band is a way of doing things, what, what do you think, what do you think he means by that? I mean, is it like, like the process of creating their music? What, what unpack that a little bit if, if, if you think you know what he means? Well, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I decided quite early on in the process that, I was going to drive myself crazy if I tried to work <laughs> out what was going on in Robert Fripp's brain. Um, but also, I did want to give the audience an opportunity to to have a consideration of what was going on inside of, of Robert's brain. But for me, 
Um, I remember reading a long time ago the phrase that all art is process, and it really did my head in and sort of annoyed me when I read it. Um, but then I realized the truth of it when I sort of became um, someone who made art more frequently and sometimes seriously. Um, and it's that, it's that the art is actually the doing of it. It's not necessarily the finishing of it. It's not not the thing that becomes commodified. It's the thing that you create. So the idea that you have a band, that it is a methodology um, and a flexible methodology at that, I think is fascinating. And it also, it applied quite interestingly to the documentary process for me because I'm not someone who's interested in, I'm just not somebody who wants to go and film a Wikipedia article or a magazine article. And the, um, I think the documentary industry is becoming much more like that because, because people have worked out how to make money from them. They tend to spend more money on them, and when they tend to spend more money on them, there tends to be greater expectations of those documentaries, and so there's less and less likelihood of people risking their backers' investments as a result. So oftentimes you get films where everybody kind of knows what's going to happen, what it's going to look like, how it starts, how it goes on, and how it ends. And that's really not what I'm interested in doing. I'm interested in art as a voyage of discovery. And I think I share that with King Crimson. So so one quick follow-up on that. Does that mean when you were working on the documentary, you're figuring out the story you want to tell while you're shooting? Or, or is there any pre-planning? Because like you said, it's I'm not- I'm just a- trying not to get into trouble, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I... I um, I mean, I I think my my primary principle or process as a documentarian is to shut up and listen as much as possible. Um, people listening to this podcast will probably find that hard to believe, but um, I I think the best work I can do is is to come to the situations that I that I end up filming in with an open mind and and not too many prejudices. There was a couple of times where I asked members of the band some slightly sort of churlish, aggressive questions that were poorly researched and I sort of got slapped down. And and I thought, you know, I'm just much better off just just hopefully asking useful questions, paying close attention to the answers and and on that basis aren't asking another question and, and it seemed to work out quite well. But I didn't really have any sophisticated agenda when I went in and when I started filming. It was more just a question of sort of trying to put myself in the position of an audience member who didn't really know what was going on. And, and then sort of, you know, first documenting the how of it and then trying to explore the why of it. Yeah. And King Crimson is known for its ever-changing lineup and musical experimentation. I'm curious, how did you navigate the challenge of presenting a cohesive narrative while highlighting the various phases and members of the band? I left loads of people out of the film. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is interesting. How did you make those decisions? Um, 
with, with great reluctance and a sense of embarrassment and shame and guilt, to be honest with you. I, um, it, it, I think it took about a year and a half to get a, a, um, a, a final and agreed number of members of King Crimson. And I think the figure we came to was 19. Um, and, you know, you guys well know that you cannot do justice to 19 people on screen at the same time, you know, and have people knowing them. So, so I just made a decision to not ignore, but not include several members of the band. Um, obviously, some of the members of the band had not lived long enough um, to be in the film. But then there were others like like um, David Cross and, and Peter Giles and Gordon Haskell who were alive when I was filming. But um, I just realized that I was not going to be able to tell everybody's story. And in order to demonstrate the principles that were at the heart of King Crimson, which I think is what's interesting about them creatively, I made the decision that by Focusing on the current band, I could show something that was actually happening because in my experience, all too often in most rock documentaries and certainly big sort of, you know, streamer type rock docs, effectively what you do is get some old fart sitting in a chair talking about the good old days and it cuts to archive and you're just watching television. It's not cinema. Um, so... I do have old men sitting in chairs talking about the good old days <laughs> of the film, but at the same time, I have musicians musicking. And, and so I suppose there's an approach in the film which thinks in terms of, well, if you have a drummer in King Crimson, you can have Bill Bruford speaking for Jeremy Stacey and vice versa, that there are things that connect people um, because of the the nature of the, the similar nature of the experience of being in that band and also the similar, similar nature of associated with their experience and the instruments that they play. So, um, and then it has to be said that, you know, there's, um, there's no drama without conflict. So when you're when you're editing down interviews and so on, um, hopefully not in a way that's exploitative, you tend to focus on the characters who can identify areas of conflict and disagreement most succinctly um, in order to, to tell the story of, of, of how the band develops and how the band approaches um, adversity you know on that note I'm, I'm curious because there's obviously a lot of emotion and ego and passion with with robert and all the band members um and you did a great job of what i would call creating well at least my perception was <laughs> that you created some type of comfort level where you could you know gain access to these these folks and let them you know really be themselves um, was that difficult? And and if I'm accurate about that, how did you do that? I um I used to work as a as um well first of all I used to work I've always been a DJ so music is at the heart of what I do. Um, but bef 
after then I was um, I worked for MTV um, as the news anchor for MTV Europe and also I used to um, uh, produce uh, the indie show there and host that as well so I, I've done a lot of interviewing of musicians um, so I have I have that in my background um, I'm so sorry I've forgotten the question I was just curious um, what your process is to make the talent comfortable to be. Oh, there we go. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so I have experience. Uh, so I had experience interviewing musicians from my work at MTV and so on. Um, but then I, um, I moved behind the camera because I didn't really enjoy being in front of it. It was driving me crazy, literally. And so I started work as a portrait photographer. Oh, interesting. And I figured out that. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, generally I didn't photograph celebrities. I sort of photographed, you know, inverted commas in normal people who'd done extraordinary things. And, and oftentimes I'd meet people who not only were not used to having their picture taken, they just didn't like having their picture taken because oftentimes they, um, in my experience, they just haven't been sort of handled well. And I think that when you're taking a picture of somebody, you're either taking a picture of that person having their picture taken. And if you do it, if that is your approach, then really what you are doing is imposing your aesthetic on them somehow, or you take a bit more time and then show a bit more empathy and sympathy to their position. And you end up photographing your relationship with the sitter. Interesting. And you take time to develop that and make them feel comfortable and and trust you. So so that that's how I developed my my sort of documentary cinema practice. I guess that's what my first film, The Man Whose Mind Exploded, is about. And that's the film that Robert saw that made him want to commission this film. That's a record of my relationship with the subject of that film, Draco. And so that's how I tend to operate now is that because partly as well, because I used to work in television, which can be very exploitative on occasion. Um, I think I felt uh, an obligation um, to, to not behave like that in my personal practice. And so the ethics of, of making a documentary are very important to me and part and parcel of that is treating your subjects with respect and and behaving in such a way that their trust in you is justified. Um, and so, for example, in my both of my feature-length documentaries, I finished the edit, and then after I finished the edit, I got people to sign release forms. Really? Uh, because and it's madness and, and I'm sure if any actual producers are listening to this, they'll be like, What a fucking idiot. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's what what's the what's the pro, uh, thought process behind that? Well the thought process is behind that is it's due to sort of um ethical arrogance on my behalf, which is that I I want to hold myself to the measure of making a film that even if it is uncomfortable for the subjects of it, when they see it, they consider it to be true. So you, you let them see it before you ask for the releases? Yeah. Or at least yeah. a, 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 a version of a, a, a cut that you have? Well, uh, to be honest, that, that it's, it's in the man whose mind exploded, no, nobody asked for any cuts. 
Um, on the King Crimson film, only one member of the band asked for cuts, and they were, and he didn't see the whole film. He saw, he just saw his his bits there. Um, Interesting. And um, when that after that happened, um, I made a couple of cuts, and they weren't. I didn't think that they were they were significant. It didn't really change the nature of the film. So we didn't we didn't have a massive argument about it at all. Well, you really um, uh, you're you're really holding yourself up to a high standard with that process. That's I commend that. That's that's really fascinating. It's um well it's I mean it's I just I just think like you know it, it's you know as I've just said that the, the principle can needs to be adapted on occasion. But I think if you start if you start a relationship which is meant to be a relationship based on trust with somebody by getting them to sign a very long piece of paper that doesn't make sense to a sort of human as opposed to a legal <laughs> brain, um, then, then you can't really start a good relationship. You've just got somebody to sign a piece of paper saying that you can, you can fuck them and their reputation however you want, you know? Right. Um, so, yeah, so that's the way I prefer to work if I can. You know? yeah, that brings up a really interesting question for me, which is, you know, it's a, it must be a very fluid process. I'm curious, did you, while interviewing did you uncover any surprising or lesser known aspects of King Crimson's history that you found particularly interesting or fascinating that you maybe didn't know going into the project? And could you share any of those moments that stood out to you? Um, are you asking for gossip? I well to be fair I didn't really know very much about King Crimson history when I went in and I and I did a, obviously I did a certain amount of research before starting the film and one of the things that I discovered in the research is that not only do most King Crimson fans know most of the history most of the chapter and verse and 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 the history has been extremely well documented both in things like the elephant talk message board but also in, in Sid Smith's massive tome, um, I figured that that was not the route for me to go down. What interested me was the, the principles that operate in King Crimson, the relationships that have, have sort of been born in King Crimson, how they operated and how they fell apart, how that affected the music. Um, because again, to sort of refer to what I was saying earlier, I just, um, I just historical documentaries where you're, you're dealing with things that happened in the past. They may, they may be a fun watch on television, but they're, they're deathly boring in the cinema. And, and I wanted to make a film that was very much of the moment, um, I suppose so. So, in those instances where you do have people talking about King Crimson history, uh, most notably Robert and Ian talking about the breakup of the first band, um, and then also um, Adrian and Bill talking about the discipline period of the band, that the part of the reason those, those are included is not only because those are important elements of King Crimson, those incidents, it was just also the way that people were telling those stories felt very immediate and that kept the film in the moment. And if there's one of the, you know, one of the core themes of the film is the importance of being in the moment. Um, so the thing that is funny to me, though, is that 
people keep on asking me who the um you know there's the line and feel free to bleep it the original lineup of king crimson contained a bunch of cunts and chief amongst those cunts was and then we cut people still don't <laughs> seem to work out um you know they still seem to think that is the mystery um so i know i don't have the sense that there is like you know some piece of arcane king crimson trivia that that we unearthed except i think what the film does effectively because it's what we wanted the film to do is it gives you an acute and immediate sense of what it must be like to be in king crimson and under that amount of pressure so it's more it's more to do with the experience that the film creates than it is about the information that the film relays. Um, so with regard to do I have any particular uh, nuggets of gossip? Not, nothing that I could tell you that I wouldn't get into enormous trouble for and end up with <laughs> some sort of well, Bible duck outside my window. Well, I want to circle back to uh, your process um, in, in, in your style and your process and in creating the documentary. Um, I heard you say in another interview that uh, Ross McElway's film Sherman's March um, was a huge influence on your style. I'm, I'm curious if you can unpack that a little bit and explain, you know, how that affected your style and why. Um, well, principally it's, and the two things are very much interlinked is this, this combination of this, um, relentless first-person camera work, um, but also with the um, the inclusion of, of the type of things that many people leave out of films. You know, and, and in Ross McElwee's case, it's the fact that, you know, he just split up with his partner and was homeless when he was making, you know, started making the film. Um, so it's the sort of... It's the use of the highly subjective to give an audience both a sense of your perspective. And I think if you can show an audience that, that your film is subjective, then it's much easier to build your trust with them because, because you're, like, you're saying, well, of course I'm looking at it this way because this is me, you know, and, and there's an honesty in there that, that I think people respond to positively. And also the other great thing about the subjective style of camera work that, that I first saw in, in Sherman's March is that it, it places the audience in the position of the person behind the camera. And there's a, there's a careful balance that you have to achieve in the edit where, you know, you don't want too much of you and believe you me, a little, you know, a little of me goes a long way. So it's a question of, I always say to editors, there's not going to be any voiceover and, you know, the less of me that's in the film, the happier I am. And I, you know, will err on the side of, of having jokes at my expense there. Um, but I think it's that, so it's from, from Ross McElwee, it's that, it's that deeply personal style of filmmaking and an inclusion of of the process of filmmaking in the film i don't want to make films about making films necessarily but i think if you can let the audience in on the process a little then there's an honesty to that that they also respond to 
very well i think so and then and then there's just overall in in sherman's march there's just this beautiful this whimsy you know there's a sort of uh, an open-mindedness and open-heartedness to that film that i just i fell in love with it when i first saw it and i think i first saw it at the university of kansas in like 1990 1991 or 90 or something like that um so it's been hugely influential on me that film and i'm so i'm sort of i wish more people knew about it because it's so charming and i think it's for me it's more significant in terms of its impact on documentary filmmaking um perhaps than you know gray gardens even it's just it's a beautiful film well, that means that brings me to another question. Um, do you do your own edits? Do you work with an editor or? Fuck no, I hate editing. To be honest, I hate <laughs> the whole process. I really do. And the, the, when I'm filming, I'm constantly going, "Oh God, is it in focus? Have I got the exposure right? You know, did I? What's happening with the sound and stuff?" Because I tend to shoot everything myself in order to to achieve that sense of intimacy and immediacy for the audience. Um, so I hate the process of making it and I hate the process of editing it even more because for me, it's just, it's, it's like doing my taxes. I just, I'm, I'm confronted with decisions that I made in the past that I regret in the present. Um, so I'd much rather offload that to somebody else. Plus, um, you know, I know this is unusual, um, for somebody who works in show business, but I'm desperately, desperately insecure. And I am, <laughs> well, I'm, yes, I'm also in great need of positive affirmation. <laughs> and, and so, so the editing process does allow me, you know, and I, I do my best not to sort of be too needy with the editors, but it does allow me to have somebody go, no, it's all right. Honestly, it's going to be fine. You know? Um, so, and, and with this film, I was very, very lucky uh, to work with an editor called Ollie Huddleston, who um, is a veteran of the now sadly past great days of British documentary making. Um, and so he's got this this wonderful background in observational documentary, and is sort of he's one of those people who's capable of understanding the meaning of of a single shot and the meaning of a scene without needing to break it down into sort of, you know, cogs and um, gears and so on. It's, um, you know, he's got an intuitive approach to editing, which uh, was very helpful, you know, which along with his sort of maturity and experience, um, you know, it allowed us to find um, a structure in the film that I've been struggling with a bit and to say nothing of the fact and this applies to almost all of the editors that I work with he's a musician at heart and that's particularly important if you've got a film that's you know at its core is about music um, to have that sensibility um, in it and it's amazing to me that you know I knew when I was um making the film that i really was entering a situation you know where you can please some of the people some of the time and all of the people you know that um with king crimson fans and it's been interesting even to see a couple of professional reviewers say oh there's not there's not much music in the film and and the whole film 
is very, is scored very very carefully with with king crimson music and the only time music is not playing is generally if somebody's literally talking about silence or dying um so um yeah so so the editing is inf is informed by a musical sensibility as well as um at its core the the film is structured um around the the most emotionally resonant elements of the footage um but then around that there is this as i said you know musical underpinning that um that hopefully makes it operate effectively um you know in a way that's in some way analogous to go and see king crimson in a concert or something yeah and staying on like the behind the scenes perspective i know we just touched on editing but i'm curious kind of more than nuts and bolts of what a day of shooting looked like if there was an average day or if every day was different what your crew size was like and kind of, kind of like more of that uh, pulling back the curtain for the audience a little um well i can introduce you to the crew right now Andrew. so <laughs> director toby amy's um, I'd like to introduce you to the cinematographer, also called Toby Amis. Hello. <laughs> Sound man, Toby Amis. Hello. Uh, the lead producer on the film, Toby Amis. Hello. And the fucking production manager on the film, Toby Amis. Hello. Um, so you, you, but the film looks amazing. I mean, I would expect you to have a, a, a little deeper crew than that. I, I, I cause it looks great. There are some parts of it that look like hell, to be honest. But hopefully, <laughs> there are. Um, what's happening is more important than what it looks like at that point. And that's well, maybe may elaborate on, but um, no, the 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 live sequences um, where we sort of cut to the band um, performing. Um, that was that's obviously that's a multi-camera shoot which I directed, um, but everything else pretty much is shot by me. Um, uh just because that way you know i'm not i'm not it's just me trying to build and and, and work on and, and and maintain a relationship with somebody individually rather than me and two other people you know i think if you your crew gets too big then you end up making theater mm, or, interesting um, so so i try and keep it um you know as simple as possible but it also means it's sort of hellish for me and i and i do make lots of mistakes as a result but my ideal camera would be just you know a better version of those uh those glasses that people have with uh, with cameras inside of them to be honest at this point i just want to record the conversations i have with people uh, as simply as possible but then with regard to your original question andrew so if they're on tour um it was normally quite a civilized start when they would sort of start sound checking and rehearsing so that was around 11 or 12 so i would sort of turn up with my camera and do my best not to get in the way um not to get told off um because it was um again as the film documents it's really important that if you're filming something you do your best not to change the nature of it i mean you do of course change the nature of it somehow by filming it 
but you don't want to get in the way of people doing their actual jobs. Um, mm -hmm. So I would film people rehearsing. I was particularly interested, and there's a there's a sequence of this in the film of these these arguments that they have about these very very small increments of time that they're all dealing with, because that's what King Crimson do. They are time lords. You know, they work in these very complicated time signatures and these very very precise measurements of of time and music. And at the same time. They're all getting on. Plenty of members of that band have already died, and one of them was actively dying. So there was a sort of an existential irony to to seeing people work with, as I said, with these very minute, you know, almost like individual grains of sand coming through the hourglass, mm -hmm. um, whilst you know under the shadow of their own mortality. I mean, the film starts with them metronome in a skull i couldn't have made it any more obvious than that <laughs> well it's a fantastic film uh i really That's enjoyed it. watching it and i i think you know it's a it's a it's interesting because it's a film for music fans it's a film for people who are fans of just human nature and and the experience of life i mean i i walked away with a lot uh a lot of questions about the movie and i really enjoyed having you on the show um tell people where they can see the movie so um, I think it's still playing, depending on when this goes out, it's still playing in a couple of cinemas in the US. It goes out on TVOD, which is sort of Amazon, iTunes, Google, Vimeo, YouTube, and so on. Uh, that happens on December the 1st. And if people are desperate to see it in a cinema as well, if they go to www.itcotck itcock.com forward slash screenings there's a link there where they can request a uh, screening in their in their hometown as well but the big news is that the film goes out on vod on december the first worldwide oh that's fantastic and where can people follow you and your work uh, do you have like a website or instagram or i am i am yeah if you just google my name so it's t-o-b-y-a-m-i-e-s that's I'm at Toby Amy's on X slash Twitter, Instagram. My website is tobyamys.com. So I'm very, very easy to find. Awesome. Well, congratulations on the film. We've really enjoyed chatting with you and uh, break a leg on your next project. Thank you very much. I should point out that, you know, whilst I've just been droning on about existentialism and mortality and so on and documentary ethics, cinema, that the film is also full of jokes. Oh, yeah. There's there's some great humor. Absolutely. It's very entertaining. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, you take care and uh, circle back sometime. We'll have you on the show again and chat some more. Well, it takes me about five years to make a film, so maybe I'll see you in... So, <laughs> so we'll see you in five years. Yeah. All right, Ben. You, you take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Melody Lopez. Our theme song was composed by Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.